Glycinic, the podcast with a license to inform. This is your host, Thomas Brancato. Today, I have the distinct privilege and honor to be inviting Dr. Philip Reynolds. And in a moment, I'll just ask Philip to uh, fill us in on what he's been up to. Uh, but immediately, I was struck by his very interesting take on what a liberal state is and the wars that we find ourselves, uh, certainly after September the 11th, but quite possibly going before then. Uh, so we'll be jumping into that conversation in a second, but without further ado, Dr. Philip Reynolds, would you mind telling us a little bit about your background in academics and, and what you do today? Sure. I, uh, I got my PhD from uh, the University of Hawaii a few years ago, and uh, it was a great experience. Uh, I was in the Army, and uh, I do have uh, uh, some, some experience in Iraq and Afghanistan, and that's really what led to uh, my dissertation, which was trying to figure out why uh, big countries like the United States go to war in small places and and then fail, uh, which uh, which was it was a great journey. And of course, the book Ouroboros uh, it was the result of that about four years of uh, of work. This I find really interesting as well the uh, the connection between serving in the army and then studying what we could call war studies. Was this transition uh, smooth? Were you were you uh, supported and propelled by any figures within the army, or was this purely an, an independent trajectory for you? Uh, no, actually, uh, uh, I started in my program. I was actually selected for it by by the army, um, and then uh, as, as the war ended and some. Uh, the money uh, kind of started to dry up. I had to finish on my own, but I was supported. Uh, the The Department of Defense actually has a has a pretty long history of sending its officers out to the civilian academy to ask these questions and to 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 kind of bring that answer back. Right, the answer, uh, that perspective that you know a theorist, uh, a professor might have, would be very different from what a, a four star general has. Uh, and and uh, personally, you know, it was a journey. I had to question a lot of my uh, deeply held beliefs. I had to, I had to expand my way of thinking. I kind of had to open myself up, put myself into a position of learning uh, in order to really internalize some of the the heavier uh, readings um, that that I, I got into. Deleuze, Guattari, Foucault was actually a significant uh, part of, of what I did. I think you've had more success than I've had in uh, in wrangling with uh, Foucault, but uh, certainly what comes to mind is to me is Clausewitz, somebody who uh, has followed sort of this trajectory of uh, you know serving in, in a military context and then spending the the last part of his life, of course, studying and publishing material that has now become you could say classic. He's sort of one of the names that you constantly hear whenever we do war studies. Has this has this been someone you run into as well, Clausewitz, and, and what he studied? Yes. Uh, so uh, part of the one of the sub questions that I had to answer in order to kind of figure out the, the war machine was, you know, Clausewitz has outsized influence in Western militaries. And, you know, Clausewitz was a proponent of, of the single battle, the, the decisive battle. And he, he got that from studying the tactics of Napoleon. Napoleon was a uh, decisive battle to destroy the army. And then the, the enemy's capital was laid bare. You can you can dictate whatever terms you want. Uh, and so, so, so Clausewitz's philosophy is is how the West works. It is how the U.S., particularly the U.S., works. But uh, the idea of the decisive battle doesn't work uh, when you get into these small wars in the periphery, uh, because you're not fighting a singular army with formations and generals. What you find yourself doing is you're fighting uh, tribes, clans, 
people for whom technology is an AK-47. Uh, and so, we, so in order to to answer why the uh, you know great powers lose these small wars, one had to understand Clausewitz. One of the imageries that I came across at the end of uh, the end of thesis that I was uh, lucky enough to find a copy of uh, your 2017 dissertation for University of Hawaii dealing with this topic, the liberal states and irregular warfare, was the image of Ouroboros. I actually had no idea what the Ouroboros was before I uh, before I came into it. I said it sounds faintly Greek, uh, and I had to, of course, Google the the image. But can you explain to to us what what is uh, an Ouroboros exactly, and uh, why why did you choose this imagery? Yeah, it is an it is an old image, and it goes all the way back to uh, Greek mythology. And and Cronus uh, was one of the father uh, of the gods, and uh, he was foretold in a dream that his children would kill him. And in order to stop this, he ate his children. And of course, uh, the only one who escaped was Jupiter, who consequently overthrew the Titans and became um, kind of the, the, the Greek god, uh, the, the foremost. And, and so that imagery was, was resonated with me because uh, there was a, uh, a phrase that Joseph Schubiter, who was a, a German economist, came up with. Uh, and that that uh, sentence, it's, it's actually iconic uh, when you talk about the war machine. And he says, uh, created by wars that required it, the war machine now created the wars it required. And, uh, you know, this was fascinating to me. I think Deleuze and Guattari actually get some credit for their 1979 book, 10,000 Plateaus, but it was Schumpeter first. And it's the idea that a liberal state, in order to secure itself, must keep its citizens happy. Uh, in order to keep its citizens happy, it must keep expanding. And so liberalism, this idea, sets itself up as the great good, and that in order to expand, in order to keep growing the economy that's going to keep its people happy, it has to go into the periphery. Well, the periphery is not blank. Uh, it's got people, it's got tribes, it's got mountains, it's got, uh, in some cases, states, uh, and, and that creates these wars. And so that's that's where this idea of the snake eating itself it it, it 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 it's creating the problem that it's trying to solve. That's really what the Ouroboros was for me. Well, this is a fascinating imagery, on, and there's so much we can we can talk about. But I, I can certainly imagine that this is already, in many ways, a, a radical vision, a radical departure, if you will, from a lot of the traditional way of viewing international relations, um, because it presupposes in many ways, as you said, creating our own monsters, creating our own enemies, and that there's something inherently, uh, just for lack of a better word, wrong with the liberal state that um, that finds such a violent solution to it, to its own problems. And in fact, when you were saying that, I can't help but also think of George Orwell, who there's a quote buried somewhere, but also making the claim, I think he mentioned it as the liberal state, but certainly the capitalist state, finds wars in order simply to uh, to offload all of its excess, all of its material excess created by uh, the industrialized capitalist system, and that when a state gets too rich, uh, you know, they would send sort of their, their, their pawns of industry off to, to die with the materials they create. And anyway, it, it it almost verges on the conspiracy, but uh, I think George Orwell has had a similar uh, sort of conclusion, or, or certainly going towards the same argument, uh, that there is something structurally flawed uh, within modern democracies, modern societies, that uh, leads to a, a violent solution. There's a contradiction. Uh, I think flaw might be 
is too strong of a word for me, but there's a contradiction there uh, that that has to be addressed and I think has to be accepted so that we can explore it. But yes. And I hope we will uh, definitely explore this further. But before we do that, one of the things that immediately struck me is when I read liberal state, and of course, there's a lot we might mean by that. But one of the questions I had was, you know, in the Cold War, we could certainly justify this idea of uh, the liberal state because it, it really was a uh, conflict between us and them that you can point to in a map and say, here, here is that Iron Curtain, here's that difference between the liberal democracies and whatever else. Today, these lines, are they getting a bit more blurred? What, what constitutes a liberal state? What sets it apart? What do we mean by liberal state today in 2021? Well, there's uh, there's certainly an idea that uh, you know liberal. It's capital L liberal, not the not the small L uh, as in domestic politics. But it's this idea that property rights matter, civil rights matter, human rights matter, and those uh, the idea of justice and equality that these are written into the bureaucracy of the state. That there are mechanisms to address inequalities in any of any of those areas. Now, geopolitically, uh, the idea of the liberal West uh, has emerged, and and you know we, there's ad nauseum arguments all the time about the liberal West and 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 just the idea of the West itself. But we can say Great Britain, the United States, Canada, France, Germany, Australia, Japan. There are others, but there's a nucleus of countries that uh, kind of sit in that liberal circle it's easy then to kind of identify the illiberal. Now there's two levels to this illiberal vis-a-vis um, -vis the Ouroboros. You know, the first one, which I don't really touch on is illiberal states, China, Russia, North Korea, uh, in, in a lot of sense, uh, Cuba. Uh, but in regards to these small wars, the illiberal are these groups that oppose the liberal order. So uh, for example, the Taliban in Afghanistan, by no means are they liberal Wilsonian Democrats. Uh, what, they, what the Taliban did is they rejected the idea of the liberal West. And so they identified themselves as a target. So, so the, the idea of the liberal West itself, you know, people argue about it all the time, but I think uh, at, 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 at a certain level, people understand what the liberalism is. They understand what the liberal West is. And, and they kind of understand that there are states that are illiberal and there are groups that are illiberal. Non-state actors uh, is, is a phrase that gets bandied about quite a bit. Certainly Kant, uh, if we go back as far as him, would have agreed that there is such a thing, of course, as the liberal state, as a liberal democracies, and that they don't tend to go to war with each other. This is a rule that, um, that's been thrown around a lot in discussions of international relations and is most more or less held up to be true. There is something about liberal states, uh, certainly they don't like to declare war on each other. In World War II, at least, we can see that uh, right up until the very last moment uh, with uh, Germany's Nazi Germany's transgressions, it had uh, a, a preferred appeasement. Uh, there's a long trajectory and a long heritage of, we can certainly say hesitance and using violence as a last means. There is a conflictive relationship, perhaps, uh, between the peoples in, a, in liberal democracy, people power, and accepting 
willy-nilly foreign crusades or certainly aggressions. But using ancient Greece as an example, I think this is very interesting. You know, where, where we historically trace the, the root of democracy, certainly these city-states didn't have much of a problem declaring war on one another and, you know, from Thucydides onwards, it's listened with all sorts of minor disputes uh, that sometimes led to, unfortunately, entire cities being razed, as was the common practice. Why do liberal states today need to go above and beyond to justify the wars? Uh, this is, uh, there, there's a lot to unpack here. Um, just uh, right off the bat, uh, since 1945, uh, you know, the nuclear umbrella uh, has really limited uh, uh, the ability of states to go to war to achieve uh, uh, changes in the system. But uh, it, it, it may be fascinating to your listeners to know that uh, the three states that have gone to war to the most, uh, however you define war, and there's plenty of definitions of war, but let's, your, your listeners are smart enough to know what it is when they, when they hear about it or see about it, are Great Britain, the United States, and uh, Soviet Union. Those are the three states that have gone to war the most since 1945. Uh, and I'm, I'm something of an economic uh, 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 academic uh, political economy was was really where I, I, I like to be. And uh, the reason why liberal states go to war so much is to maintain their position in the international system. The, the reason the United States has gone to war so much is because it is the largest benefactor of the current liberal system. All the riches of the world flow to the United States, and so the United States spends a, a trillion dollars a year maintaining that system, uh, keeping it free from threats. Uh, but you know that constant democratic peace, right? So, so it's been studied. Uh, it's one of the most studied uh, concepts in international relations, uh, and and it has largely been true since 1945. In that, great powers, democracies don't go to war with themselves, but great powers, democracies in the United States and Great Britain do go to war against what they see as threats to that international economic order. Um, the, uh, the, now, would the United States go to war with China? Um, you know, China's not a democracy in any sense. Uh, I, 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 I don't think that would happen, nor do I think China would, uh, would, would go to war either because the, the global economy has now become so integrated. China is so integrated into the global economy. If China were to attack Taiwan, uh, capital would, would flee China. Now, that's not to say that over the next 20 years, as the West pulls back from China because of what's happened over the last few years, that China may, find, may not find itself in a position of, of having nothing to lose. I don't think uh, so. So the democratic peace theory largely holds up. Uh, some people call it the McDonald's peace theory. No two countries with McDonald's have ever gone to war. Uh, and McDonald's being a a, a kind of a, 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 sim, a symbol of an integrated global uh, consumer economy. I've never heard of the McDonald's theory, but uh, certainly I can see how the Great Britain might declare war on the U.S. over the uh, dreaded filet fish <laughs> So what, one way uh, if, if my, to understand the Ouroboros, the concept that, that we're talking about here, and of course the subject of, of your thesis and your book, might it be useful to understand this as sort of unresolved natural tension between 
liberal and state. On the one hand, the liberal element of that phrase pulls towards, as, you, as you've uh, listed, a human rights, equality, justice, mm -hmm. uh, diversity, inclusion, etc., etc. And on the other hand, we have state, which is an older construct, uh, an older body, um, follows more eternal, uh, timeless things, interests, material needs. Uh, it feels uh, afraid of its neighbours, it's competitive, mm -hmm. etc. Is it useful to think of the reverse as, as trying to marry these two things together and then finding, oh, there's all of these uh, different things that pop up. Sure. So uh, kind of what you're what you're heading towards is this idea of uh, this urge towards humanitarian assistance, right? Liberalism and liberal states see themselves as the good goal. Like everyone wants to be like us. Everyone wants to have what we have, uh, electricity and clean water and healthcare and all the things that make that possible, which are civil rights and property rights and human rights. And, and in order, and, and so when, when a liberal state, liberalism, I, I have to almost turn it into a noun, it's, and that's a little difficult in and of itself. Liberalism says, if we are good, we are good because we can identify something out there in the periphery that is bad. And as time goes on in that periphery, Somalia in 1992 comes to mind. The, the West, the, the liberal West says, we must go in there and help fix Somalia. And of course, what happened? Uh, it, it, it's turned into a 30-year civil war. Uh, the United States isn't really involved anymore. Uh, Policy-wise, I think the United States is now uh, uh, pulling out a lot of its support from Somalia. And so, uh, so absolutely, you know, that's one of those contradictions we talked about, right? So, so Liberalism sees itself as a good, but it can only be the good because it's identified the bad, the illiberal other, and it wants to go fix it. It wants to say, hey, uh, we, have, we, we have to fix you because you're a threat to our way of life, which is, which is in itself a contradiction. In no way, shape, or form was Al-Qaeda an existential threat to America. It certainly could kill a lot of people, which it did on 9-11. But, but no one was, was calling up uh, al-Qaeda in Afghanistan saying, we, we love you, we support your system, let's form a, a block of, of nations and states and groups. None of that was happening. And yet the U.S. still felt compelled mm -hmm. to go to war and then to democratize Afghanistan. And we, we've seen that, that that's failed. We've seen these ventures as well, not only in the case of Somalia, of course, but Iraq, Afghanistan, and perhaps going all the way back to Vietnam. Uh, similar, you could say a similar popular will, popular belief that, hey, mm -hmm. uh, we have a great way of life here. Uh, you know, why don't, why don't we go and, and uh, install it over there? It's for, it's for your good. But I find the last point that you made very interesting, this, this concept of uh, liberalism almost creating the enemies that it then needs to go and, and hunt down mm -hmm. and convert. Uh, it's this sort of a missionary zeal that is added and almost necessary for the casus belli to stand. But can you guide us through a little bit more about how this works? How uh, you mentioned it as identity in your thesis about counterinsurgency as an identity war. Can you guide us through how are these identities that are perceived to be hostile to the liberal state, how are they created and how, how are they resolved and why are they necessary? Sure. Uh, you know, identity, uh, th these are ethnicity studies. Uh, so anthropology uh, really comes from that, that field of academics. But uh, an ethnic group, uh, you could, one can identify it from the outside because uh, common language, common religious beliefs, common rituals, uh, they tend to perpetuate the group through intermarriage, uh, childbirth, child rearing. 
Um, but, but the key, and this is the identity advantage that negates the technological advantage of states, is that the group sees itself as the group. It's not so much that the outsider says, yes, those people are those people. It's that people inside the group say, yes, I am the chosen, part of the chosen people. I am this group. And then what, what happens is when the liberal West or, or liberalism identifies them as illiberal and in need of policing or, uh, or violence, as the case may be, that group then feels under threat. Uh, and this is particularly true uh, when groups are able to use religion. And, and so religion constitutes sacred beliefs. In other words, I speak English, and English is a characteristic of my ethnicity. But I can go learn French, I can learn Chinese, I can learn uh, uh, Tagalog and go live in those countries, right? Uh, because my connection to my language is much less strong than my connection to my God. Uh, God is the end all be all. God is my sacred belief. Without that, I, I can't change my belief in God. And so what happens is these, uh, these small groups then are able to use religion as a mobilization factor towards violence because a threat to their religion is a threat to their existential self, right? And so in the West, we don't see that. If, if uh, in, in World War I, when France and Germany were fighting, uh, it, was, it was basically an economic war, right? But these small groups like the Taliban, the ISIS, Al-Shabaab, Boko Haram, see the West as attacking their identity and, and their identity is, is mobilized through this idea of religion. And so they can't give it up. They, they absolutely, if, if they can't just change, they must fight to survive. Now we're talking about something that is much more than just uh, an economic war, as you suggested, but almost becomes a, a total conflict that uh, transcends the individual and yes. becomes almost transformative in nature. But the the interesting thing about uh, the your thesis and your book is that uh, it's not just Al-Qaeda doing this, it's also us in the liberal world that have a transformative zeal that that is totalitarian in an aspect of saying we cannot coexist in a world yes. where you are a liberal and we are liberal. Um, absolutely, absolutely. So so here in the West, you know, we believe that you know civil rights and human rights, uh, our, our ideals of ourselves, this Madisonian Wilsonian uh, impetus, is incompatible with traditional patriarchal or authoritative societies. And, and so this this is in the meta theory, uh, you know, well above uh, 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 some of the some of the case studies. But it, you mentioned Koswitz, Koswitz concept of absolute war. Absolute war is when two values are are competing against each other, and so you have the other mobilized primarily in the 21st century so far through religion. Mm -hmm. uh, there's sacred beliefs. And yes, in the West, we have our own sacred beliefs. It, it, it isn't God. It's the idea that, uh, that our way of life is incompatible with your way of life. 9-11, the horrible attacks on 9-11 is a jumping point for many of 
topics that we study today. And uh, especially so, uh, I think many people could view it as the start of, or certainly a central point in uh, the war on terror and what eventually became the, the war in Afghanistan and, and of course, uh, Iraq. Your thesis and your work on the liberal transformative mission of liberal states, I can almost think of jumping back to World War II and thinking of that actually as a starting point for this total clash of values, as you suggest. Which is more useful to think about it? When did this begin? And what is the role of 9-11 in all of this? So, so it goes back to early, earlier in our discussion, we, we, there's almost two lenses. You have liberal states and illiberal states. You have the United States and China. Uh, and, and, and conflict between those are going to play out in a different way than conflict between a liberal state, a liberal way of life and an illiberal way of life. So those illiberal ways of life, and this is something that's that's very important. Generally, these great powers are able to go to war against these illiberal groups, these in these identity conflicts, simply because they can. The the United States, the Soviet Union in Afghanistan, the French in Algeria were able to because of their their rich their rich uh, uh, economics were able to project power into the periphery. All right. The, the cost of war, the French, the Soviets and the United States said the cost of war there is is lower than what we think we'll get back in return. Uh, liberal states and illiberal states, the cost of war is high. The United States knows that a war with China would cost tens of trillions of dollars and may end with the, the destruction of the U.S. way of life. China knows the same thing. And so there's, there's much more of a dance there, right? This is what we call security under the nuclear umbrella. But, uh, but 9-11, you know, no one expected uh, Afghanistan to, to turn into a 20-year war. Uh, no one expected uh, Iraq to turn out the way it did uh, after the U.S. left. ISIS, of course, came back. Uh, but it goes back to this idea that, you know, great, great powers, the United States, uh, it, it can interject itself power is passive, force is active. It can project force into these areas. Uh, and, and um, you know, uh, George W. Bush in his first uh, national security strategy in 2002, you know, he didn't, he didn't talk about going to war in Iraq. He talked about addressing the causes of instability and internal conflict that leads to the rise of groups like Al-Qaeda. And, and that's that humanitarian impulse. Hey, we're, we're good. We're, we're the liberal West. Our way is the best. And we, can, we need to help everyone see things the way we do. I think one point that I was relating back to, as you were just saying that, is it's interesting when we view uh, the actions, especially after 9-11, uh, under the lens of the Ouroboros, under the lens of the transformative mission of the liberal state and its intolerance to the intolerant, uh, maybe another way of putting it. and. Um, and what I was thinking back to is right, you know, when when decisions are fundamentally based on values, uh, which is an ethereal concept, which is mm -hmm. almost an ideological concept, uh, then the outcomes are not always precise. It's not always Klaus Wirtz sitting down and, and doing a mathematical equation of how much, how many years do we need in Afghanistan? Uh, they're mm -hmm. often led by popular will. And, uh, you know, I remember as a child uh, when September 11th happened and uh, it, the television was wheeled in. Uh, I was just a child in school at the time, but it was an overbearing sense of pain and loss. And the, and the world felt that way for, you know, for a long time after, it was still today. And um, when we're talking about emotional 
decisions, when we're talking about values, when we're talking about ideology, when we're talking about transformative missions, we're talking about, uh, you know, the world of feelings of the subjective. How much of an impact do you think this has on then finding out 20 years later, uh-oh, we've been fighting a regular war that we're completely unprepared against? And how do these two relate, the irregular asymmetric war and the transformative Ouroboros? Well, we talk about that, that Ouroboros. Um, you know, Al-Qaeda uh, executed 9-11, and the United States went into Afghanistan uh, with its allies, it went into Iraq with its allies, and, and what happened? Al-Qaeda became ISIS. ISIS became Boko Haram, became Al-Shabaab, became uh, you know, Al-Qaeda in the Maghreb. It, it just keeps going on and on. That's what identity conflict does. Uh, the, you know, Boko Haram in, in northern Nigeria may never have seen uh, a, an Arab Al-Qaeda guy, but you know, they, they use that religion to kind of say, hey, we're all in this boat together. Um, and so that's on, on the irregular side, on the illiberal side, that's how these conflicts keep going, right? So, but on the, on the liberal side, uh, that's, that's one of the things that, that liberalism does. It has a mechanism which can, can correct imbalances. And so in 9-11, you know, we, we, uh, the United States went to war, the world went to war. And slowly over the last 20 years, We've been listening to citizens. We've been listening to our academics saying, you know, this isn't working. You're, you're actually making things worse by projecting your force into the periphery. There's got to be a better way to engage these groups uh, nonviolent ways. Um, and that's something that, 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 that really sets the liberal system apart from the illiberal system. The liberal system has that mechanism, open dialogue, uh, elections that lead to changes. It takes a lot longer to get there. It takes, because you have to build consensus. Illiberal states and illiberal societies can just dictate the change. They don't have to listen to everyone. Uh, and that is, a, that is a key difference uh, between the liberal and the illiberal. But uh, back, to, back to the Ouroboros, you know, 9-11 uh, spawned a multitude of uh, extremist groups around the globe. Uh, and and, and uh, so that was an unintended uh, consequence of, of 9-11. And that concludes the first part of my interview with Dr. Philip Reynolds on the subject of wars and the liberal state. Stay tuned for our next episode where we discuss these matters further. And I hope you'll stay with us for the next episodes that we've got planned. Please remember to follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, YouTube, and more. And of course, to check out our website for the latest episodes. Thank you so much and have a great day.